In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us to guide us, to help us to know you better, and to know how we can know you as Father, as Trinity. We ask your, your guidance and your help in not just knowing about you, but living in that love that you give us. We ask this through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. So now we're going to start digging into the creeds. You know, we, we, we talk about the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to start digging into those creeds. And that's the main part of what we'll do through the rest of this first part, is talking about the parts of the creed. And, you know, question that, I don't know how many Catholics ever will ask this, but question that I hope people do ask is, why do we recite the creed at Mass? Why do we, every Sunday, say the Nicene Creed? You know, and it's a question, because I think, unfortunately, a lot of Catholics that actually go to Mass, they kind of take the approach as, well, that's just what you do. You hear the priest preach, and then you say the creed. Why? Well, that's just what you do. And don't really think about what we do at Mass any deeper than that. And it's not just the creed, it's the whole Mass. Like, everything we do at Mass, it's just, that's what you do. You sit down, you stand up, you kneel, you say this, you do that, you go forward, you come back. It's just all the things you do at Mass, and not the why. But I think it's important to think about why we profess a creed, why we recite this statement. Because there are many, in when they talk about spiritual life, they say, well, I don't want to be bound by a creed. I don't want to be bound by these statements that are given to me by someone else. My faith is my faith, and it's what I live and what I believe. Um, I remember before I was a... a seminarian before I, I entered the seminary I was I, I sponsored someone through RCIA I brought someone to the church and through baptism and the whole works and one of the a misguided uh, practice that the directors of religious at, of this RCIA program wanted us to do was write down our creed and of course it couldn't be just write down the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed it had to be what was our creed our personal creed. And that's a very misguided approach because the creeds that we profess at Mass, or as we say, the Rosary or other prayers, are ancient creeds that were developed using lots of prayer, lots of study, lots of argument. You know, they were, they were developed by councils, they were developed by bishops and theologians and People who spent many, many years studying and arguing and debating about these elements that are in these creeds. They are passed down from generation to generation to generation as summaries of the faith that we profess. And so when we recite the creed at Mass, we are first and foremost publicly declaring our shared belief that this is what we believe as Christians are these elements, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and so on and so on. These are things that we share as Christians. And that's why it's so important that we recite them at Mass, because we are telling each other that we share this belief. But also, remember what I said last week, I believe it was last, two weeks ago now, about how our faith is a obedience and submission to God. So when we say, I believe in one God, we are submitting ourselves to what God has revealed through the church and being obedient to him and his teachings. So the creed is as much a statement to God saying, I obey and submit to you and to what you have revealed through your church as we profess in this Creed, as we state in this creed. And so it, 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 it's, such an, it's a very important aspect of the Mass that we do this, that we come to our Lord and say, or to God, and say, I believe. When you look at the creeds, as I said, they're, they're summaries of our faith, and they're really broken down into three major parts, whether it is the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. They're broken down into three major parts. And they're in reference to the Trinity. Because we, the first part 
is the Father, reference to God the Father, in creation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The second part is the Son in redemption. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, in everything that he did. And then the third part is the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Those three parts are the major elements or major sections of the creed, and then they themselves are broken down into 12 articles, 12 distinct sections of the creed. And that's what we're going to be going through. We're going to be going through the Apostles' Creed as part of the Catechism. And it's, you look at the table of contents, and it's broken down into those 12 articles. So we'll say Article 1, God the Father. Article 2, Jesus Christ, His Son, and on down through the list. Um, each major part of the creed is united to each other because the Trinity is united to each other. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit, what that means to say that the Trinity is united. Now, there have been many creeds throughout the history of the church. There have been many statements. Uh, one that was traditionally used at Mass on a rare, rare occasions was called the Athanasian Creed, which is much longer, but it's much more detailed than the creed that we normally use. Creeds go back, these statements of faith, these professions of faith, go back to the early church, back to the earliest days of the church as they're struggling with everything that Jesus has revealed to them, as they're struggling to figure out what it means to be this church, this Christian church. They came up with these creeds mostly to give to people who are going to be baptized to profess their belief. That's where these creeds come from. That's why to this day, when we have baptisms, we say, along with the people being baptized, the profession of faith. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and his only son? You know, Do you reject Satan? And all those statements that we do the I do statements for. That's where this comes from. These creeds came first from, okay, you've learned about our faith. Now do you profess it? Do you accept it? And so they would, they would profess that faith as part of their baptism. And that's, like I said, that's carried on through 2,000 years to today. But there have been creeds recently. Uh, Pope John Paul, or excuse me, Pope Paul VI created what he called the credo or creed of the people of God. It kind of faded. You know, it was popular for a while. People were using it, and it kind of faded. It was just another restating of these beliefs that we have. But by and large, we pretty much just stick with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Those are the ones that we, I would venture, most Catholics know the best. You know, we pray the Apostles' Creed as part of the Rosary. We pray the Nicene Creed at Mass. Now, the Apostles' Creed, this isn't necessarily, when we say it's the Apostles' Creed, we're not necessarily saying the Apostles wrote it. But it's one of the earliest summaries of the faith that the Apostles passed on. So it goes back to very early church, the first few centuries of the church, before the Nicene Creed, the first couple of centuries of the church. And it is, like I said, one of the earliest summaries. And this is the creed that they used, for the, the, those in the, at least in the Roman church, the church in Rome, for baptism. And that's why we use it today. When you look at the baptismal rite, this is the version we use when we all renew our own baptismal promises, is this version of the creed. And then we have the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed is also known as the Niceno-Constantinople Creed. Easy for me to say, obviously. That's why we just call it the Nicene Creed. It's a lot easier to say the word Nicene than that. It was originally written by the, the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea is, is a place in Italy. Uh, no, excuse me, I, think it's, I forgot to look it up. I think it's modern-day Turkey. Excuse me, I can't remember where Nicaea is anymore. Um, but anyways, it was where a major council came out that defended the divinity of Christ. This is the one where you, you, know, you hear of St. Nicholas, the story where he supposedly went and punched uh, a heretic, Arius, that was at this creed now, or at this council. Now, supposedly that didn't actually happen, but it's still a good story to say he got so mad at this heretic who wasn't repenting that he punched him in the nose. But... Um, like I said, that didn't happen, but this Nicene Creed came out of that council in 325 AD, 
And then about 60 years later, in 381 AD, there was a council in Constantinople, which today is known as Istanbul. It's Istanbul, Turkey, was Constantinople. There's a song by a band called They Might Be Giants that talks about that. Different, but whatever. Um, but the Council of Constantinople revised slightly the Nicene Creed. And then it's been more or less the same ever since. Um, this creed that we, we've recited along with Christians for over 1,600, 1,700 years now. We've recited the same creed that they have, like I said, with minor changes. And I will talk a little bit about one of the changes that was made to the creed in the Western Church or the Roman Catholic Church that's not in the Eastern or like the Orthodox or the Eastern Christian churches. But it's, it's, a, it's a change that I'll talk about a little bit later. So today... We're going to start going through the creed. That's we've, all this we've talked about where we've talked about how we can know that God exists and that God reveals himself to us and how we respond to God all leads up to this. Talking about the creed, what we believe. You know, especially about the Trinity. Because as I said, the creed is triune. It is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in three parts. I like this quote from the Catechism that says, it's uh, paragraph 197, to say the creed with faith is to enter into communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also with the whole church which transmits the faith to us in whose midst we believe. That's summary of what I just said about the creed. That's a creed about what I just, what I said about the creed, if you will. Um, but it, it's, it, again, it shows the importance of the creed, and that's why we start studying the creed by talking about, I believe in God the Father. What does it mean to say that I believe in God, and what does it mean to say that God is Father? So we begin with the first person of the Trinity, which makes a lot of sense, because when we talk about God the Father, you know, he says he is the, the Alpha and the Omega. That'd be like saying the A and the Z. Alpha was the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega was the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So just like we'd say A is the first letter of our alphabet and Z is the last letter of our alphabet. He is the first and the last. He came before of all creation, and he is, to whom, he is the one that creation is leading towards. They say the beginning and the end of everything that was created. All of creation came from him, and all creation points to God. And that's why our goal in life is to... Follow him, because we were made, as all creation was made, for him, to point to him. So when we say that I believe in one God, we're not just saying that we believe that God exists, but that he is one, that there is only one God. There are no false gods. There are no... This is going to be controversial, maybe, for some, but there are no Hindu gods. There were no Greek gods. There were no Roman gods, no Sumerian gods, no Egyptian gods. Those were all false gods. And there is one God, and he is solitary. He is the only God. He's not a multiple of gods. There's this rather lengthy quote in the Catechism where it says, there's only one God, Eternal, infinite, unchangeable, incomprehensible, almighty, and ineffable. God, the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three persons indeed, but one essence, substance, and nat or nature entirely simple. So kind of break that down is there is only one true God, and he is eternal. He's before time, and he's after time. He doesn't, there was no start to God, and there will be no end to God. And he's infinite. Again, there's no start to God, there's no end to God, both in time and in space. You know, we have a finite existence. We are limited to within our bodies. We are limited to, God willing, 80, 90, 100 years of life. We're not eternal. We're not finite here on earth, or we're not infinite here on earth. He's incomprehensible. We cannot completely grasp God. And we've talked about a lot of this when we were talking about Revelation, how God had to reveal himself to us because we can't grasp him on our own. He's almighty. You know, he's, again, he's greater than us. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's ineffable. For something to be ineffable is for something 
that we can't truly express. We cannot express the fullness of God. We cannot talk about the fullness of God because we don't understand him. We can't comprehend that. And of course, he's Father, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it says, one essence, but three persons. And this is the mystery of the Trinity, that he is three persons, that is one God. One essence, one substance, one nature. We'll talk about that again here in a little bit. One thing God has done, the Father has done, is he has revealed his name to us. And I think we've kind of lost the sense of a name today. All a name means for us is our identifier. It could as easily be our social security numbers. For all our name really matters to a lot of people. It's just like, you're Peggy. You're Jean. You know, that's it. It's just we're identifying you. But there's a traditional sense of a name that it is much more than an identifier that it's much deeper. It helps us to truly know someone. If we know someone's name, we know them deeper than just random person sitting in a chair. You know, the person we're talking to. It, is, it allows us to enter into a personal relationship with them. So if God has revealed his name to us, he's telling us, I'm not just some being that's out there. I want to have a relationship with you. And part of starting that relationship is knowing my name. Now, the name that God has revealed to us is I am who am, or I am who I am, or I am I, who I am, and that's all that I am. Oh, wait, that's Popeye. <laughs> you know, but I am who am, or the, or the, the letters Y-H-W-W-H. Now, there's a way that we have more or less figured out how to pronounce that name that I'm not going to use because, out of respect for Jewish belief, Israel belief going all the way back to Moses, that this is a name that you do not say. This divine name of God that we translate into English as I am who I am, or just I am, is so precious of a name that you don't say it. The Jewish people would not say when they were reading the scriptures this name in Jewish, in, in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew name that translates into English, Y-H-W-H, because Hebrew did not have vowels. It had little tick marks eventually to hint at what a vowel would be. But it was all consonants. But they would never say that name. They would say the name Adonai, and you've probably heard that, Adonai, Lord. That's why Jesus took on, he says, I am the Lord. You know, God says, I am the Lord your God, There's no, you will have no gods before me. Lord, Adonai, they would never speak that name. This divine name, I am who am, is truly a mystery that shows that God is above everything. No one's going to say, my name is I am. We would say, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm this aspect, that aspect, I'm, I'm Father Corey. God is saying that his existence itself, that is, he, existence comes through him. He is above everything, and everything is insignificant to him. You know, this isn't Descartes of saying, I think, therefore I am. He is above all of existence. And yet, because he's I am, not I was, I will be, I am, present tense, he's present to us. God is here with us, despite the fact that he is above all creation and has created everything. He is still present to us, to each of us as an individual. And he's always willing to show us his mercy and his love because he truly is faithfulness. He, not just is he faithful, he is faithfulness. He is always showing faithfulness. Even when we are unfaithful to him, even when we turn our backs on him, 
He is still faithful to us. He is outside of history and creation because he created history and creation. Again, everything exists because of him. And he is the fullness of being and perfection. When we talk about something being perfect, it's only perfect insofar as it's related to him. We talk about beauty. It's only because it is related to him as the creator of that beauty. And so on. He is the fullness of being in perfection. And that everything we have and are as our creator comes from him. Our very lives are gifts from him. Our very lives are because he wills for us to be alive. We exist because he wants us to exist. It's a gift from him. And so, when we talk about him, we talk about our Heavenly Father. And of course, we talk about what it means to say that he is Father in a little bit. We recognize that if he's created everything, if he's above everything, if he's I am, then what he has to say is not just a truth. It's not just one truth out of many. It's not just my truth versus your truth. It's truth itself. Nothing we can say is more true than who God himself is. He is truth himself. There is no truth in the world that does not exist in God. This is why I said last week, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, where science and faith do not contradict each other. If it is a truth of science, it is because it is also a truth that comes from God. Anything that, that science claims as a truth that is contrary to what God has revealed, contrary to what God is, is not actually a truth. It's a lie. It's a misunderstanding. It's a distortion. Whatever you want to call it, it cannot be a truth that is contrary to who God is. God is truth. All truth comes from Him. This is why we can trust in his revelation as true. Because he can only speak the truth. He only can speak about himself. And he, he's the only one that can reveal the truth about himself. Only he can reveal himself. So everything he said in Revelation is true. And we can stake our lives, literally, on that truth. The reason why we as humans fell, you know, the story of Adam and Eve and all that, is because the temptation to doubt that truth. Remember, the serpent said, did he really say you can't eat of that apple? Was it an, we don't know if it was an apple or not, but did he really say you couldn't eat from that tree? Oh, but if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God himself. You'll know right from wrong, just like he does. They put that, the devil put that seed of doubt in their mind that God was lying to them. And they bit on it, literally. You know, there's that seed of doubt. They doubted his, the truth of his words. And that is still the temptation today for us to look at what God has revealed through the church and to doubt it. The fact that we have divisions in the church, divisions between Christians, is because they have doubted his truth. They have said, no, this cannot be. There must be, it must be something else. So that is still a temptation today, is to doubt the truth of re, that God has revealed to us through his church. But not just is he truth, he is also love. The fact that he revealed himself in the first place was because he loves us so deeply that he wants us to enter into that relationship with him. And this love that God has revealed to us is deeper than anything we can experience here on earth. It's deeper than any love with any relationship that we can have. Even the, 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 the comparison that we often see in the scriptures of a parent to a child or a bridegroom to, her, to his bride pales in comparison to God's love. Because God's love will never fail. We know what happens when the love between a bridegroom and a bride fails. We call it 
divorce. God will never divorce us. God will never break away from us. Now, we can break away from him, but no matter how unfaithful we are to God, he will never stop loving us. He will never stop seeking us. You know, that, again, that image of seeking, you know, the, the shepherd seeking for the sheep and so on. He will never see, cease coming after us out of love for us. And this love of God is so deep that we call it the Trinity. The Trinity is the exchange of love between the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. In Trinity, that unity of the three of them is his love. And the best part is, the love that he wants to share with us is to share in that Trinity. To join in that eternal exchange of love that God constantly loves and wants us to share in that love. Now, we're not going to become parts of the Trinity, but we will share in that love of the Trinity. So, what does it mean to say that we believe in one God? Well, it means, first of all, that we do recognize His majesty, His greatness, how far above us He is, how far above all creation He is. And so we need to put Him first. As the God who created us, as the God who loves us, He deserves to be put first in our lives because of how great he is, because of how majestic that he is. And then we live in thanksgiving of what he has given us, the love that he has given us, the life that he's given us, everything that we have. Because again, everything that we have and everything we are come from him. They are from God. They are, they are not anything that we have made ourselves. Ultimately, they are from God. Also, we need to recognize that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that he created us in his image and likeness. And again, that's something we'll talk about more much later. But because we are made in the image and likeness of God, we need to share that same love that we are called to share with God with each other. We need to be seeking unity with each other and seeking the dignity of all. All humanity. It should always be our desire that we are unified as a, as a human race and that we show each other dignity and love. That we never treat each other as less than us. You know, this is the danger of so many of the, the isms, racism and sexism and misogyny and all these things that people are throwing out there. Well, the problem when we, we do those things, we are not showing that unity in that dignity of the human person. That also is why issues like abortion and euthanasia are wrong, because they, again, do not show the dignity of that human person that is attacked through abortion, that is attacked through euthanasia. Because God gave us everything, we are also called to make use of the good that we have, the things that we have. He gave us creation to draw us to him and so we are to use the good of creation to draw closer to god while rejecting those things in creation that do not there are things in our lives that keep us from god and it might and there might be things that are fine for one person but not fine for us then there are things that they're just not good they're evil in themselves things in our culture things in our world we, should re we need to reject those. And then ultimately, we need to trust in God. I like that, that prayer or, or poem from St. Teresa of Jesus, who's also known as St. Teresa of Avila, that it ends that part with, where it, the last line is, God alone is enough. That is how we should live our lives, that God alone is enough. That should be a prayer that's on our lips. God alone is enough. It's a very difficult thing to say. It's a very difficult thing to live because of our temptation to turn away from God. But God alone is enough. So God, out of love for us, has revealed himself as the Trinity. You know, we, we, this, this Trinity is the central mystery of our faith. It's the central element of our faith. All of our faith, the Catechism uses the word root of our faith. 
Well, what is a root for? To grow into a tree. The purpose of a root is to grow and nourish a tree. Well, our faith is like that tree that is nurtured and grows from that root, which is the Trinity. The Trinity is the central element of our faith, and all of our faith flows from there. It flows from that Trinity. Everything else we believe is branches off of that. And sometimes it's branches off of branches off of branches like trees do. You know, you look at a tree and sometimes there could be five or six branches off of the central trunk where it just keeps building and building and building. But that is still flows from the Trinity. And the Catechism uses two words we've heard, but it uses it in a little bit different context than I think we're used to. And that's theology and economy. Theology and economy are two words when talking about the Trinity have a little bit different context than what we're used to using. When we talk about the economy of the Trinity, the divine economy, we're not talking about, you know, we think of money. We think of monetary study when we're talking about economy. And that fits when we're talking about the economy of our country, the economy of our, you know, of a business. But when we're talking about economy in the, in the Trinity, it's the works that God does to reveal himself. So what God has done to reveal him, himself, his grace, the teachings of the church, the catechism, the Bible, and so on. These things are works that God has done, whether directly or through inspiration, to reveal himself, to reveal who he is. And theology is the mystery of God's inmost life of the Trinity. Deep inside the Trinity, who is God? What is God? What, you know, what does it, the Trinity mean? All these things that God has revealed to us through his economy are theology. When we are studying theology, when we are studying our faith, we are studying God's inmost life. And this study is guided by his economy, his work that he has done to reveal himself. So what God has revealed to himself is his inmost life. And the only way we know what is his inmost life is by what he reveals. And that's what the study of theology is. When we talk about a mystery, you know, we, we say something's a mystery. It's not just something that we don't know. But it's something that we cannot know through faith and reason alone. So we cannot, through faith and reason alone, figure out the Trinity. Reason did not bring us to the Trinity. Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where reason did not bring us the knowledge of the Trinity. God revealing himself to us brought knowledge of the Trinity. So anything that is a mystery for us to even know that it exists, it has to be revealed by God from the very beginning. We can't even know that a mystery exists unless God reveals it to us. And that's why the Israelites did not know about the Trinity, because God did not reveal the Trinity until our Lord came. That is when we knew that God was a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, moving into this Trinity, we talk about God as Father, this mystery of God as Father. And it makes sense that he is Father, because he is, the, as, as you know, St. Thomas showed, the first origin of everything. Everything comes from the Father. It is the Father who created all things. You know, but he is, a, he is a father. He's not just a creator. He's a father who loves and cares for his children. As we hope earthly fathers, those of you who are earthly fathers, love and care for your children, even your adult children, who may even have kids of their own. You know, we hope that fathers will care and love for their children. But he's not a clockmaker God. There, were, there are... Movements like deism, which was very popular uh, at the founding of our nation. Many of our founding fathers were deists. And what deists are is kind of a step above agnostics where they know there's a God. They might even know a few things about God. But a lot of times they view God as a clockmaker. Think of a, you know, somebody who made an old-fashioned wind-up clock. 
He made the clock. He put all the parts together, got it working, wound it up, and sent it off. Sold it to someone. And the only time he would ever touch that clock is if something broke and he needed to fix it. Otherwise, that clock would go to that person's house, go to that business, go to wherever, and he would never see it again. That is the view of a clockmaker God. We don't have that view as Christians. We believe in a God who is Father. Now, to be clear, sometimes there are images of motherhood as well that are used. You can think of, our, our, of Jesus when he's looking at Jerusalem before his passion, and he talks about how he would take them into his arms as a mother hen embraces, you know, covers the chicks. You know, that image of motherhood, that in, image of intimacy, of love for children. And this is where we need to be clear that by calling God Father, by saying our Father, we are not saying that God is a man. By using these images of motherhood, we are not saying that God is a woman. This idea that became popular after the Second Vatican Council of, oh, we need to de you know, desexify the, 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 our Father, so our Creator or our Mother, no. No, it doesn't work. In fact, there have been troubles talked about before of um, priests who getting caught up in this movement of, oh, that's sexist to say that God is father because that's saying that God is a man. And of course, that means women can't participate in this. So we need to baptize children in the name of the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. And those baptisms are completely invalid. Because we, baptized, we were told by our Lord to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so they had to go back and contact people 20, 30 years later who had been baptized in that way and said, uh, you were never actually baptized. You just got wet. We need to baptize you. And you need to receive confirmation again. And you need to receive First Communion again. And your wedding, your marriage that you thought was a sacramental marriage wasn't. Or, and this has happened, you thought you were ordained as a priest? You weren't. You need to go back and do all that. And that makes some really sticky business if this priest has been doing things like celebrating Mass and hearing confessions. We trust in God's mercy that he doesn't have to go back and rehear those confessions, and he doesn't have to go back and re-celebrate those Masses, and that the people did receive the Eucharist even though he wasn't technically, he wasn't, not even technically, he wasn't a priest. So, but by saying that God is Father, we are saying that in a term of relationship. Not that God has, is male, not that he's a man, but that he is in relationship to us as a father. He is showing us the love that parents, especially fathers, are to have for their children. And parents participate in that love, show that love in a smaller way. Because, of course, we don't show love as deep as God shows love for us. I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, okay, you have the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but most of the time you're, you're celebrating Jesus. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Oh. You're jumping ahead of me just a tiny bit. You're good. You're thinking good. But you're ahead of me just about that far. So... When we also talk about Father, we are talking about Father in relationship to the Son in the Trinity. The Trinity is a Trinity relationship. And I put the, you've probably seen this at some point or another, the, tri the Trinity Triangle, I call it. And this talks about the relationships and everything in the Trinity. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But when we are referring to God, the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, we talk about them in relationship to each other, Father and Son. You know, it is, is a relationship there. Now, the Son is not first created. That was one of the heresies that the church fought early on about the Trinity, was that the Son, the, Trinity, the, the, the heresy said that the Son was the first created being. And then God created everything else. And that's not the case. The Son is eternally in relationship 
with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are eternally in relationship with each other. And when we talk about the, the, the Trinity, we will use the word consubstantial. Con, I say it every week. Consubstantial. You know, we say that now in the Creed, that the Son is consubstantial with the Father. That means in substance with. What that means is we are expressing with that word that unity of love. To say they are, in uni- they are consubstantial, they are in union with love, that unity of the Trinity, that unity of love that they have. And that unity of love is also the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are talking about that relationship. Now, the Holy Spirit is also not a created being. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity in existence for all eternity, as the Father is, as the Son is. But it is that eternal love between the two of them. And so the Holy Spirit is sent first by the Father in the name of the Son. So when the Holy Spirit shows up in the Old Testament and while our Lord is there, is here on earth, The Father is sending the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son. After after the Son, our Lord Jesus, he tells us right before he ascends into heaven that he needs to go so that he can send the Holy Spirit. From that point on, he sends the Spirit down upon us. That's why it's appropriate to pray, Lord Jesus, send your Spirit upon me. And you can also pray, Heavenly Father, send your Spirit upon me. Both are absolutely appropriate. You know, so and this is one, of these, one place, however, where we did change the creed in the Western church slightly. Of course, we say slightly. Some of the Eastern Orthodox churches say it's not so slight. But we added a phrase when talking about the Holy Spirit that in Latin is filioque. Filio, son, que. And, so, and the Son. So when we say the creed on Sunday, we say, you know, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's that filioque statement. They just say he proceeds from the Father. And what the Eastern Church, and these are Eastern Catholic churches as well, churches that are in union with the Pope. You know, they see Pope Francis as the head of the church. They say, proceeds from the Father. And their understanding is the Holy Spirit comes from the Father through the Son. It's like it was back in the Old Testament. So it is, you know, all three members of the Trinity are participating in this. But it is the Father through the Son instead of the Father and the Son. A lot of ink and maybe even a few, a few drops of blood have been shed over this argument. And it's not one we're going to settle here. But it, it is an important thing to re- recognize that there is that distinction between the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit proceeds, comes from the Father and the Son, or the Father through the Son. I mean, that, that's an important distinction in theology. Um, but one thing the Holy Spirit, of course, is our advocate to God and our teacher. It is all of Revelation has come through the Holy Spirit. So you're saying that uh, you have the, the Father, uh, so you're praying, and you, you, um, you don't necessarily say God. You would just say Jesus? Or? You can say God, you can say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Again, I'm gonna, you're, you're still a little ahead of me. You're still a little ahead of me. You're, we're getting there. Um, you know, as, as I said, you know, the, the revealed truth of this Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the center and basis of our faith. Our, everything about our faith comes from this, this element of the teaching of the, the Trinity. And we see it in our preaching. We, if a priest preach, is preaching right teaching through catechesis, repair, everything we do comes from our understanding of the Trinity. Everything that we believe. 
And so the church very early on clarified it through misunderstandings, through errors, and so on. That's why I, I jokingly will say that we know more about the Trinity through what we got wrong than what we got right. Because it, it seems like that, that we, we've had to stumble over the Trinity. And that's where this Trinity triangle comes in, where this element, um, it comes in. I'm going to get up for this part just because it's easier to point. Um, but when we look at the Trinity, we talked about earlier substance, person, and relationship. When we talk about the substance of God, you know, consubstantial, in substance, with, we are talking about the unity of the Trinity. So the Trinity is one. It is unified. And each divine person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is fully God. That's what these arrows here show, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, we're not saying the Father is a third of God, the Son is a third of God, and the Holy Spirit is a third of God. Each is fully God. They don't split the divinity of God. They don't have separate divine natures. There is one divine nature, one divine God. And all three are fully God. But each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, remember one God, three persons, they have distinctions of what they do. So this is where you're asking about when we're at Mass, we address Jesus mostly, because we do. And we talk about the Eucharist as Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity. That is a distinction of how the Son operates, if you will, is as you know, the Eucharist, as you know, the, our Lord. Now, these aren't modes of God. And what I mean by that is, that's one of the heresies called modalism, where basically God takes off a mask, the father mask, or hat if you'd prefer that, takes off the father hat, puts on the son hat, takes off the son hat, puts on the Holy Spirit. There is a distinction between the three persons of the Trinity. The father, that's what these lines are saying, is not the son. The son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the father. They are unified as one God, and they are all, each of them are fully God, but they are not each other. And that's, again, why we can talk about sending down the Holy Spirit. We are asking for the fullness of God, who is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And then all three, and why it's a triangle, is relationship, is in relationship to each other. The Father is in relationship to the Son. The Son is in relationship to the Father. The Son is in, or the Holy Spirit is in relationship with both. And they are fully in each other. So, where one person of the Trinity is, all of the Trinity is. So, even though, again, we talk about the Son, the person of the Son with the Eucharist, when the Eucharist is present, the entire Trinity is there. You can't separate them that way. You know, it's, it's all together. Because the Trinity works in common. The works that the Trinity does, this economy that we talked about, is the fullness of the Trinity working. You can't separate that. But it is each divine person does the work that is unique to them. As the, the, the Catechism uh, has in paragraph, paragraph 258, there's one God and Father from whom all things are, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things are, and one Holy Spirit in whom all things are. You know, we, st we talk about our Lord as the word through whom all things were made. You know, we say that during the creed. Through whom all things were made. So the whole Trinity participated in the creation through our Lord, 
Jesus Christ. You know, so, and that's how we can, again, we can talk about the Son present in the Eucharist. We can talk about the Holy Spirit coming down upon him at baptism. And so, the ultimate goal of all of this, of the divine work of the Trinity, is the unity between us and the Trinity. What the God, the triune God wants of us is to join in to this love that is the Trinity. So we are called to participate in that and, and allow the Holy Spirit to dwell within us while we are here on earth to lead us and guide us. And in fact, uh, as I was preparing for this class to wrap up, I had to ask the, whole, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come down upon me so I could get through this. <laughs> so that shows one way that the Trinity can, can reside within us. And so that, that finishes this up. Now, did I kind of answer your question or? Uh, yeah, when you, well, when you have it at the Mass, but when you're praying, mm -hmm. you um, connect with uh, Jesus. I mean, not Jesus, but with uh, the Father. Do you ask different things of the Father then? Or? You can. Oh, absolutely. You know. Yeah, it, yeah. You pray it's a God mm -hmm. instead of just all three of them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it's, it's perfectly fine. And it, we can get much deeper into this. I mean, there, we, we studied a lot of it at, at seminary, of course. And what you can say about one, you can say about God as a whole. And now, again, there's, you got to make sure those distinctions that, you know, the, the, the Father, when you're talking about the individual persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you can say God is present in the Eucharist. Absolutely 100% correct, 100% correct. Can you technically say that the Father is present in the Eucharist? No, because that is a work that the Son, the second person of the Trinity does. But the second person of the Trinity is fully God. That's why we can say God hung on the cross. The second person of the Trinity did. That's why we can say God created the world. That was the Father doing that. That is why we say, you know, the Holy God come down upon us. That's the Holy Spirit coming down upon us. So you can say just generically, you know, God, when you have an intention for one or the other person, one of the persons of the Trinity. That's, that's absolutely permissible. Now, again, you can't, you have to be careful not to mix them. It's the point. You know, again, so that's like when I started my prayer, I said, you know, Holy Father, or Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit. That's absolutely permissible. You know, I'm addressing the Father, asking for the third person of the Trinity to come down. You know, clear? Sort of? <laughs> Father and Son, what the Holy Spirit is, is the love with the... With between the, the two. Between the two. Yep. And that is what's sent down to us to help, to help guide us yes. through trouble and through, through anything. Yep. Through anything. And, this, and this is why when we talk about love in a Christian sense, we're not talking about that emotional feeling of love, that, that sense of longing, that sense of desire, that sense of, you know comfortableness with someone else or however we express it the love that we we're talking about as christian sense is the third person of the trinity the holy spirit it is the eternal love between the father and the son you know it is a love so strong that it became or is i should say is not became is the third person of the trinity you know and so that is what when we're asking for god's love to come down upon us we are asking for the holy spirit yeah absolutely yep yep you got it. Clear as mud. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, again, a lot, lot of ink and a little bit of blood has been shed over, and probably not a little bit of a blood has been shed over this. I've got a question. Sure. Um, off the subject just a, bit, a little bit. <clears throat> truth. You know, in Pilate, it says, what is truth? Yep. Is, is, am I correct in saying it's all of God's revealed, that he has revealed about himself? Is that what truth is? Truth is God himself. So 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Yes, it is he himself. Yeah, so, and, and that's, that's really, you know, because Jesus says, you know, if you knew the truth, you would accept me, paraphrasing off the top of my head. And Pilate doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand what Jesus said at that point is not my truth, your truth, but the truth. If you knew God, you would know who I am. Right. Yep. So, and, that, and that's, that's what Pilate is questioning. What is truth? You know, it's, and it, it, it's a very prescient question. It's a very interesting question for him to ask. It's like he had an awareness that even he didn't realize he had. You know, that, because he didn't say what is your truth, what is a truth. It's what is truth. Well, the answer to that question is he's standing right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, that's human beings. There's a million truths. Yep. You know, that's not, it's not God. God is, is truth. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that, again, that's why we can trust his revelation. Anything else? A few months ago, I was reading, I don't know where I was reading, but it was talking about a priest during baptism, he said, the Father, Son, and something different on the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And they were saying, like you were saying, everything was nullified. Yep. Yeah, if, if... And it was just, I read it about four times, and it was just like one word, and it was, oh, this can't be... Yeah, like he could have said something like, Father, Son, and love. You know, like we talked about the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. So he could have said something like, the Father, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and love. And that would be an invalid baptism because that's not the word, that's not what it you was, use. It was Holy Spirit, but it was something like Father, Son, it was we. of the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah. Like well, there, there was the issue of, you know, we baptize you versus I baptize you. And that, that you know, that's, ultimately it's, we have to follow the words. I mean, it, it's a simplistic. But, but no, I mean, it, it, you change any of this formula, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you can, can and will invalidate. You know, baptism just doesn't happen at that point. But I, I didn't, when I was reading it on a newspaper or sure. internet or whatever, and I didn't know if it was somebody just picking on the Catholic Church. Or There's probably a little bit of that, oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> fake, fake news, fake news. Yeah, exactly, so... Different translation of the same word. Because um, spiritu, which is Latin for spirit, is also used as ghost. So it would be the spiritu busters instead of the ghost busters. It's li that's literally just an English translation issue. You know, that for a long time when they talked about spirit, spirit and ghost were the same words. Eventually now we split them out to ghost being the thing that haunts a house. Yeah. Casper, or the things that, you know, the Ghostbusters go hunt, you know, versus a spirit, which is, you know, our, our souls, you know, our spiritual, you know. It, it, it literally is no difference in that case. So it, it's, it's not invalid to say, you know, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. That's perfectly permissible because that's just how it was translated for probably about a thousand years or so. Mm -hmm. um, had instructions from Mary to uh, say something about the um, what is it, the incarnation or the, the sacred heart of Jesus or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, uh, to the Russians and Ukraine. Oh, the consecration. That, unfortunately, is fake news, but um, you know, because I, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, John Paul II in the mid-80s, I believe it was, 88, I want to say, I can't remember, um, did a consecration prayer 
And he said that he consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And then under his breath, he said, especially Russia. And I just, I, I only found out about this because just the other day, Pope Francis did another consecration and specifically said Russia and Ukraine. Um, but what people are arguing, because John Paul II did not out loud say, I consecrate Russia, but he said the whole world and then whispered, especially Russia, he didn't, it didn't take. No. No, sorry. That's, that's not, the faith isn't a gotcha. So we need to be very careful in situations like that. And again, I, I know there are, there are lots of people out there who say, oh, it didn't happen because he didn't say the right words. There's a big difference between a sacrament. When we talk about the Eucharist or baptism, you know, if I get up there at, at the altar and I say, this represents my body instead of this is my body, the consecration doesn't happen. It remains bread and wine. You know, but with baptism, if the priest said, we baptize versus I baptize, that doesn't seem like a big difference to us, but in the sake of the sacrament, it does. The baptism doesn't happen. That was a recent issue. When we're talking about Things like consecration and blessings, it's a lot more flexible. You know. Um, well, this person speaking at the Pope should have should have been should have been right on and not make a mistake. And he didn't make a mistake. The Pope did that on purpose, and it was because of geopolitical issues. There's a, a, a podcast I listened to recently that talked about it. There are geopolitical issues, you know, you know, there's the whole, you know, uh, what was it, uh, Gorbachev called it, um, where they started to work with the West more. Glasnost. Glasnost, yeah. You know, that was starting to go on. We were starting to see the Iron Curtain was starting to thaw. Um, Berlin Wall was, of course, they didn't know it at the time, but the Berlin Wall was just about to fall. You know, it was a time when we could have peace with Russia, and there was a thought that if he had specifically said out loud the word Russia in this consecration, that it could set that back. Might have been a wrong-headed approach, but first of all, he did still say Russia. Secondly, again, God is not looking, especially when it comes to blessings and consecrations and things like that, he's not looking for gotchas. He's not looking for ways to, oh, you didn't say it exactly right, so it didn't happen. You know, you do the consecration prayer to Our Lady after, you know, so there's the, was it the 33 days to morning glory, the one that, uh, uh, it's a consecration to Our Lady. If you say that prayer just a little bit differently at the end of the book, Our Lady's going to go, you didn't say it right, didn't happen. No, no. She's going to be like, thank you. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I just, all I can say is whenever someone says that, just say, God, God is not out there to trip us up. He's not out there to look for every little mistake we do. That's, that's the God with the big book that he's like, oh, you did this this many times, and you know. No, that's, that's that mindset is out there, and it's, it's, it's a miserable mindset. It's a, it's a depressing mindset that God is like, you do it exactly 100% right or else. If, if you want, it's going to change again in two weeks. So, um, so yeah, it, all I can say is about that consecration, and they're saying the same thing about the one that Pope Francis just did, that he didn't do it 100% right. And all I can say to them is, 
And it's on video, so people will see it on video too. I stick out my tongue at them. <laughs> but Christ said that uh, he knows, the Father knows what's in your heart before you open your lips. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> and so that's a good place to, to cut off at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we got to remember God loves us and he wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is unity with the Trinity. So let's, let's begin by invoking the Trinity, or close by invoking the Trinity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.